Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 12 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. A possible unknown fact to many. A human fart can be louder than a trombone. I discovered that at my grandson's school concert. Four strangely woven stories tonight from The Tainted Isle by Dan Weatherer. The Art of Disbelief, The Restless Witch, Mother, The Pallid Ones. Let's get after it. The Art of Disbelief Having shared some insight into my work, perhaps now it is time to address my thoughts on skepticism. Skepticism is an integral part of the investigative process. It is an element of my character which at first seems at odds with my motivations, yet is vital that it remain a part of my psychological constitution. When I initially began to investigate the paranormal, I had no preconception nor understanding of what I was about to undertake. If you had asked me before my foray into Elverton, did I believe? Likely, I would have laughed and explained that of course I did not believe, at least not entirely. The truth was that I could not believe, not then, when I was so naive to the ways of the paranormal. I am schooled, to a degree, in the fields of science, mathematics, and language, much, I imagine, as are you. We are taught at a young age that the world is governed by rules and systems so that order may prevail. This is how we come to understand the world and our function within it. Yet, what if there are elements which fall outside of these rules and systems? What of the boggarts? the screaming skulls, and the mermaids. How are we to interpret their existence if we cannot apply our rules to them? I digress. Let me put this simply. I believe, though not all tales, and never on the strength of hearsay, 
I have experienced far too many incidents that occur outside of our system of rules not to believe. Yet to conduct an investigation of any worth, one needs to provide proof that lies within the rules of our understanding. If I can supply proof of an event or creature that is accepted and understood by the laws of science, mathematics, and language, then I can confidently present my work to an accepting public. Where many investigators fall foul is in the presenting of evidence that is weak or worse, falsified, in order to prove their belief. Faith is all well and good in religion, which, in my opinion, should be viewed in terms of its philosophical merit and not interpreted as fact. In the field of the paranormal, providing proof that is both logical and factual is the most effective means of conveying a theory or explanation that might otherwise be construed as residing beyond the realms of accepted thinking. Therefore, maintaining a degree of skepticism when conducting an investigation into the paranormal is crucial. For example, this mindset allows me to identify quickly those witnesses who are fraudulent or have little in the way of valid information to offer. Remaining skeptical means that I follow a diligent and concentrated passage of investigation and it defines and further hones any conclusions I might reach. The question born of skepticism invariably helped to shape the truth. I learned early to think of each investigation in terms of a large piece of granite, the truth of which lies buried within its core. Skepticism is the chisel of truth. The Restless Witch East Mersey, Essex, May 1873 I have already alluded to the fact that Lady Foxby and I remained in contact long after our meeting in Burton Agnes Hall. We had shared many letters by this date, sometimes as many as four in a month, and I found our exchanges both enlightening and exhilarating. Jasmine was a like-minded soul, as passionate on the subject of the paranormal as I, and able to offer new approaches of thought which I freely admit have helped to shape my work. Such was her appetite for the subject that our letters quickly began to span several pages. Often she would direct me towards further reading in regard to stories of strange occurrences that occurred in her country, urging me to travel north so that I may join her on an investigation. Though I repeatedly entertained the idea, I decided it would be better if I remained distant. I would reply in earnest, thanking her for her recommendations, but each time politely declining her invitation, citing that I had much to occupy me. Though it pained me to refuse her, she seemed to take my repeated repudiation in good spirit. I should lie if I claimed that I did not wish to see her again. That I found her enchanting, I need not say. The initial spark I had felt upon meeting her resided within me still. Thoughts of her would spark butterflies in my stomach. I had yet to feel anything quite like our connection with anyone else, and I found myself thinking of her often. She stirred a wealth of emotions within me, emotions which I persuaded myself that I ought to forget, for she was wed to another and therefore it was not fitting to want for her in such a way. See? Even now, thoughts of her distract. 
It was late in April when I received a letter written in a curious, almost illegible hand, requesting my presence on the island of Mersey. The letter explained that the residents of the island were suffering due to the actions of a young girl by the name of Sarah Wrench, who, having died in 1848, still plagued the island every 6th of May, which the letter explained was the anniversary of her burial. The author of the letter asked that I travel at once, bringing with me the means with which to keep a restless corpse safely interred. It was not signed, but there was a forwarding address should I choose to reply. I found it amusing that Mersey had the audacity to name itself an island. While geographically it is indeed almost entirely surrounded by water, with the Cone Estuary lying to the south and the River Cone all but completely cutting through the mainland, leaving only a single road as the route into Mercy, passage can be made easily by wading through the shallow river. I arrived in the small village of East Mersey on the fifth day of May, expecting the author of the letter to be a local resident. I was surprised to be met by Lady Foxby. After a brief and awkward embrace and the exchanging of greetings, I inquired as to what she was doing so far from Burton Agnes Hall. She explained that it had been she who penned the letter requesting my assistance and that, seeing how I was forever declining her invitations, she had decided to take the initiative and draw me out of seclusion. She had written the letter with her left hand, disguising her handwriting, and had set up a forwarding address so that she might receive my reply. She assured me that the story she had sent was based on truth, and she apologized for stooping to such crooked means to draw my attention. I assured her that no apology was required and that it was good to be in her company once again. Hearing further as to how set she was upon joining me on the night's investigation, I outlined my plan. The parish priest, a slight elderly gentleman by the name of Father Earnshaw, showed Lady Foxby and me to the troublesome grave. The girl was buried on the north side of the church, the area of the cemetery reserved for sinners and suicides. When pressed as to why Sarah Wrench was interred on this particular side, the priest merely grunted and pointed to a rough patch of upturned earth. That's hers, said the priest, making a quick sign of the cross. See how nothing grows nearby? The grave lay at the farthest point from the church. The grass surrounding it was withered and black, as though the earth had been scorched. The grave was unmarked. Seems a shame that she should lie here without her name attached, don't you think? said Jasmine. You say that now with the benefit of ignorance, began the priest, seemingly taken aback by Jasmine's question. For though young in years, she was capable of villainous acts, all of which she was tried for, might I add. Tried and found guilty, as were so many others, replied Jasmine, a note of sorrow in her voice. The witch hunts blight our proud history. Many innocent women died due to the ignorance of man. That they did, countered the priest, but this one had it coming. Even God has no place for her in his kingdom. He turned towards me. The parish sincerely hopes that you can help contain her curse. I nodded and assured him that we would do all we could to put the fears of the community at ease. 
I suggested to Jasmine that we ought to visit the nearby village to gather accounts of the alleged disturbances, explaining that first-hand accounts, though often littered with contradictions and factual errors, could hold key pieces of information which enabled a better understanding of the forces that might be at work. I remember that she smiled at me, her eyes mischievous and knowing. She positively delighted in telling me she had already spoken to the majority of the villagers, most of whom had been only too keen to tell their tale. We spent that afternoon in the graveyard. I listened enthralled while Jasmine recounted the stories of the villagers, she delighting in being part of the investigation. I could sense her excitement. It transferred via her movements, the feeling with which she spoke and the look in her eyes. It was those eyes and her scent which stirred those hitherto buried emotions most of all. We talked about everything and nothing, enjoying those silent moments, natural moments in one another's company. There was tension between us, pure and light, one that teased at sinful possibilities. I saw that she delighted in it as much as I, and the beginnings of the connection first felt at Burton Agnes Hall developed into a bond that became impossible to ignore. A solitary raven observed us from atop a crooked gravestone, curious yet approving. Those sun-kissed hours spent in the cemetery that passed in the blink of an eye. According to the villagers, the aggrieved spirit of Sarah Wrench returned to her body upon the stroke of midnight every 6th of May. The community then spent the next 24 hours locked away in the safety of their homes, fearing to set foot outside or else feel the wrath of the vengeful ghoul. Many told that she would move from cottage to cottage, hammering on windows and doors, wailing and screeching until the toll of midnight the next night summoned her to the grave once more. Those who braved to leave their homes during the anniversary of her burial suffered vicious assault. It was alleged that one poor farmhand had been scared mute. Suffice to say, the villagers lived in fear of the date and hoped that we would be able to find a solution to their woes. As dusk gave way to night, I suddenly realized that we had spent the afternoon talking, leaving little time in which to prepare for the evening ahead. I instructed Jasmine to keep a lantern lit and to remain by the grave while I collected the tools and pieces of iron I had requested from the village. The hope was that I might build a structure which would serve as a means of keeping Sarah Wrench in the ground. The two of us made light work assembling the frame which, once erected, resembled a skeletal cocoon. In position over the grave, it reached almost to the height of my chin. By the light of Jasmine's lantern, I sat upon the cage with my lump hammer and began the arduous task of securing it into the ground. The moon was high in the midnight hour nearby the time I laid down my hammer. Exhausted and sodden with sweat, I collapsed under the dirt. The top of the cage now stood only a foot or so from the ground. Such was the effort I had taken in bearing it into the depths of the earth. Satisfied that only a suitably large amount of force could remove it from its foundations, I retired to the north wall of the church. Jasmine followed with her torch held aloft. She had been a blessing during those long, hard hours. Without her support, I doubt I would have been able to exert myself enough to secure the cage. I was thankful for her company. The moon hung heavy, full and high, among a tapestry of stars. We lay together, Jasmine and I, side by side, 
gazing to the heavens, each lost in thought. The night was warm and still. The silence carried an air of unspoken promise. I remember turning towards Jasmine, only to see her lying upon her side, watching me with a smile on her face. I know not how to explain the next moment, for I am no poet, but I felt her lips thin and gentle upon mine. Our kiss seemed at once natural and all-consuming. In that single moment, all else ceased to be. At that moment, there was only she and I. There was our desire for one another and nothing else. At that moment, we were somewhere, I thought, untouchable by man. At that moment, we lay in the heavens. A kiss is governed by laws unto itself, by which I mean a kiss knows its own duration. I can say with a degree of certainty that the screams of the ghoul trying to claw its way free of the iron cage did little to bring about a premature death of our kiss, though once we realized what was happening, the mood did alter somewhat. I climbed to my feet and rushed towards the iron cage, urging Jasmine to stay back and away from harm. Sarah Wrench had fought her way to the surface of her grave and was proceeding to thrash and wail, sending mud and soil flying as she desperately tried to escape her new prison. Panicked, I threw myself onto the cage, hoping my added weight would hinder the ghoul's efforts, but the pen continued to shake and buckle. The strength of the creature was terrifying, as was its fury. I closed my eyes so that I needed not look upon the rotted tangle of flesh that formed Sarah's face. It was then it dawned on me. I may be required to lie on top of the cage until the following night. If indeed I let out any audible kind of groan at this realization, I am thankful it was likely lost amid the frenzied cries of the ghoul. I do not know how long I spent riding that bucking, shaking iron cage as the incessant shrieking of the ghoul seemed endless, but cease it finally did. So suddenly, in fact, that I almost fell off. Such was my anticipation of moving to coincide with the next violent jolt. Jasmine spoke first. Her voice was soft and eerily distant, at least to my ears, which had suffered the raucous screeches of the ghoul. She bid that I open my eyes. With all still and serene once more, I obeyed, only to be greeted by the sight of the macabre frame of Sarah Wrench lying beneath me. Her hollowed eyes locked with mine. Neither of us moved. It's quite all right to climb off, said Jasmine. I wrote a quick blessing and placed it on her cage. It seemed to soothe her, don't you think? Having neither the time nor the inclination to argue the merits of what constituted a soothed ghoul, I quickly dismounted the cage and took my place beside Jasmine. She regarded me with a curious look, one of both pity and admiration, should such a conflicted look exist. I thanked her for her help and stooped to read the blessing. Whatever was written on the scrap of paper that Jasmine had entwined through the bars of the cage had certainly calmed Sarah. Sarah Wrench, child of light, may God's forgiveness absolve all of your sins. I'll etch it into a piece of wood tomorrow, said Jasmine, placing her hand on my shoulder. I didn't quite have the time to do so just now. You seemed in need of quick assistance. We remained by the side of Sarah's grave until dawn when I ordered Jasmine back to her lodgings in the village. Reluctantly, she agreed, and she spent the day resting. Sarah had not stirred since Jasmine had placed the blessing upon the cage, 
though her eyes remained open and alert. Several times I observed her tracking the movement of the low-lying clouds that spotted the early morning sky. It seemed wrong of me to bury her while she watched the sky, so I elected to remain by her side until the bell tolled midnight and the curse was lifted once more. Jasmine joined me at dusk, bringing hot soup, bread, water, and a blanket. We huddled together beneath the stars, thankful for one another, until it was time to return Sarah to the earth. It was slow progress, bearing a body through the spaces of the cage, but we covered her as best as we were able, a ritual no doubt undertook by the villagers each year. Afterwards, I walked Jasmine back to the village tavern. Though exhausted physically and mentally, being around her invigorated me. Still, I cannot recall what we spoke about on that walk to the village, or even if we talked at all. Jasmine asked me to stay with her for the remainder of the night. She even offered her bed to me. As a gentleman, naturally I refused, opting to sleep on the floor. I slept soundly that night, not as a result of exertion, but of the company which I kept. When I awoke the next morning, she was already gone. A handwritten note lay on the bedside table. My dearest Solomon, my thanks for letting me join you on one of your many adventures. The memory of this time shall stay with me always. Yours truly, J. X. Crestfallen, I returned to the church to find the parish priest standing over the iron cage. He pointed to the grave of Sarah Wrench. A little medieval, but I heard that it was effective. I nodded and gestured to the small wooden plaque that was fixed at the head of the grave before explaining that it was the blessing of God and not the cage that had kept Sarah content and in the ground. Turning to leave, I suggested he remember that. Mother it was many months before I next heard from Jasmine, despite the regularity of letters I sent. For a time, I was puzzled as to why she had left without saying goodbye, and aided by her silence, my mind entertained a number of possible theories. I paid little attention to my work, allowing a collection of cases to amass upon my desk. I had lost my focus. When finally she did respond, she explained that she had decided to return home without disturbing me, so not to draw out our goodbye. She stated that she had experienced much in those couple of days that she did not fully understand, citing that distance had allowed her the means and time to appreciate her emotions. Her place was with Foxby, and any feelings she may or may not have towards me were better left unexplored. She finished the letter by asking that I not contact her again. I was heartbroken, of course. I understood that she was a lady, married to a lord, and as a lady had certain duties and responsibilities to uphold, all of which weighed heavily upon her. Yet, that night in the cemetery, I had seen her free of her burden, perhaps for the first time since her courtship began. Moreover, I had allowed myself to fall in love with her. This had been foolish, that I knew, yet the heart pays no heed to titles or logic. I had dared dream that she had loved me in return. Her letter implied much to the possibility, though I knew I would likely never find out if this were true. Those initial days after reading her letter remained gray and indistinct. Time passed by in cumbersome lurches, 
I, a reluctant observer to the world around me. In short, I withdrew into myself. It was my mother who intervened, eventually freeing me of my grief. She entered my study entirely unannounced. The curtains were still drawn. She threw them aside, chastising me as she did so. The morning light flooded my study, burning my eyes. She stood before me, arms folded, a look of displeasure on her face. With our pleasantries out of the way, talk quickly turned towards the issue clouding my mood. I gave away little of my mindset, choosing short, curt answers where she hoped I might elaborate. After a time, annoyed at my stubbornness, citing that it was a trait inherited from my father, she asked of my work. I gave an overview of investigations to date, explaining that I felt I had reached a crossroads. My experience with Jasmine had opened my eyes to a new way of looking at life, and indeed myself. I had no idea how to move forward with my work, nor how to understand the heartache I felt over Lady Foxby. My mother turned to face the window. At first I thought I might have upset her, and I stood so that I might comfort her. She bid me sit, and I obliged. With her form presented to me in silhouette, she began to speak. I never questioned your choice of path, nor shall I try to persuade you to continue, though there is something which I must share with you. Now, having seen something of the unnatural, you will not look upon me as a fool. Your father, he would not understand, and though he would never admit to it, talking about such matters would merely unearth buried pain. She turned towards me and smiled. You had a sister... Her name was Victoria. She passed shortly after her birth. She was your twin. Hearing her words elicited a strange and complicated series of emotions, all of which I seemed to feel at once. There was the sense of love and loss felt in a single moment. Victoria, my twin, had lived only a few minutes, and I would never know her. I know she passed away, continued Mother, but she is with us, with you still. The air was charged with emotion. Swallowing hard, I asked her to explain what she meant. Do you ever feel a presence with you when all seems at its darkest and hope is lost? Do you feel that your burden, your fears, do you feel that they lift somehow? If only a little, do you hear someone speak to you only to find that no one is there? Does someone point you towards something on some of your investigations that perhaps you earlier overlooked? That is Victoria. She walks with you still. She sees that you are looking into her world, and she hopes that one day you shall see her. I mulled over the words of my mother and urged her to sit. She took a handkerchief from her sleeve and began to dab at the corners of her eyes. Yes, there were times when I felt that I was not alone or I revisited a piece of evidence and suddenly saw the situation in a new light. And then, there had been the figure in the mist when I was a child. Yet, I had pushed these feelings aside, keen to understand only the tangible. I told my mother the story of Horatio and the figure in the fog. She sat quietly and smiled throughout. When I had finished, she stated that she believed I had seen Victoria. It was she who had been trying to help my dog and me. I asked as to why it was that she thought Victoria would appear to me at a similar age to myself and not as an infant. 
I can only make an assumption that, as your twin, she is bonded to you in death, much as she would have been in life. You grow old together. You on this plane, she on the other. I see it like this. You walk the same path, yet an unseen obstacle divides you. I shall teach you how to see her, if you are willing to learn. Without hesitation, I indicated that I would. She then proceeded to talk me through the steps she required to prepare herself for the acceptance of Victoria's presence. I begin by closing my eyes and setting my intention, which is to reach my spiritual guide and to receive messages or advice that she wants to pass my way. My guide is my great-grandmother, Joan. I say to myself inside my head, my intention is thus. Then I sit quietly and listen to the sound of my breathing, focusing on the movement of my abdomen. I simply breathe, steadily and slowly. I then imagine tying a silver thread around my waist, just a thin silver strand about the thickness of a piece of string, and I attach the other end to a leg of the chair. This anchors me to here and to now. It allows me to travel wherever I wish. If I become distracted or lost, I can find my way home by pulling the thread. I then say to myself, I call up my ancestors, my angels, to help me travel safely, and in my head I imagine a doorway. Everyone has his own doorway. We create our own when we first travel, and it always has a staircase behind it, going down. We do not travel up to their realm. We always meet our guides or spirits in our self-created place, which we walk down to. Down because we are accessing our subconscious. My doorway is an old tree. I open the door and step onto the staircase, which winds down to the left anti-clockwise. I reach the bottom after ten steps and push open another door, which leads to my special place. It's a green meadow with trees and a river running across it. I walk barefoot. It is a summer's day, sunny with a gentle breeze. The more senses I can use while I'm here, the better the experience. My mind is convinced it is real if I add sounds and smells. I urge you to do likewise. I cross the bridge towards a tree, which I can sit under comfortably in the dappled shade. The birds are singing. The leaves are rustling. I can smell flowers. I then invite Joan to talk to me. She may sit and speak to me. She might give me a gift, something symbolic that I must interpret. She might answer my questions. She might heal me or hold me, touch me, or simply sit quietly with me. Each experience is different and intense. When I'm done, I reverse my journey across the bridge, through the door, up the stairs, and as I arrive at the doorway back to the here and now, I thank my guides, angels, and others for their love, their help, and for keeping me safe. I sit for a couple of minutes as I come back into my space. I open my eyes and breathe. I'm fatigued and need to be outside a while. This, with practice, can bring Victoria to you too, though she is always near. I thanked her for explaining her technique and asked a father in his knowledge of Victoria. He feels her loss still, but is not gifted in the ways that you and I are fortunate. You have inherited your gifts from my family line. My mother and her mother before were all able to converse with the dead. I chose to neglect my gifts for a long time 
until Victoria made her presence known. I find great comfort in that presence, and she is so proud of your work. She wishes to protect you. She showed me what occurred the first time you ventured out into the unknown. As you become aware of her, accept her presence. She shall become more of an influence in your life. Do not fear this, for she offers only advice and protection. She has a love for you, son. Love is a brother. I tell you this today because I see your pain. It is right that you learn of her now. It is right that you love her in return. Mother, having said what she needed, left me to my thoughts. The rest of the day I remained at my desk, mulling over her words. I had a twin sister. She was watching over me, helping to guide me in my work. I could not help but wonder if something inside of me had urged me towards working within the realm of the paranormal, perhaps as a means of reconnecting with Victoria. I wondered if it had perhaps been her will that had influenced me. This was a confusing time in my life, and for a while I was not sure what to make of my mother's admission. I concluded that she had told me of my sister so that I might overcome my malaise and focus on my work once more. It also made sense that I ought to learn about my family history at some point, but the notion that Victoria was watching over me with the intention of making contact was an idea that I admit I struggled with. I often wondered what it was she would wish to say to me, and if I would care to listen. The Pallid Ones Woolpit, Suffolk, October 1873 The village of Woolpit lies east of Bury St. Edmunds in the heart of Suffolk. Upon my return to my work, the first newspaper article which caught my interest came from the Suffolk Herald and mentioned said village by means of the testimony of the minister of the Blessed Virgin Mary Church, Father Mark Deeney. He claimed that one of his parishioners whom he refused to name, had shared with him an extraordinary story concerning a pair of white figures that had been witnessed stalking the surrounding dales. It was common knowledge among the community that sheep often went missing during the dead of night, never to be found again. It transpired that a spate of recent disappearances had all but depleted the flock of one of the village's prominent farmers, and in a bid to solve the mystery, said farmer, had gathered a group of hardy individuals, and together they kept watch over the flock. For three nights, not a single sheep was unaccounted for, and the men were on the verge of giving up hope with regard to finding out what was causing the flock numbers to dwindle. However, on the fourth night, just before dawn, the group saw two small pale figures take one of the sheep by the head and hind legs and carry it away. Surprised at the audacity of the thieves, the group of men quickly followed after the pallid figures, who, quite unexpectedly, seemed to vanish into the ground some distance ahead of them. A thorough search of the area was conducted, yet no trace was found of the figures or of the missing animal. Father Dini explained that those present had no cause to give a fictitious account and that all had attested to seeing the same thing, that the two pale figures it seemed to melt into the ground before them in what was a featureless field. There was no place in which they could have hidden, and the search for them carried on until midday to no avail. The article continued to explain that sheep were still disappearing from the area 
and that the villagers were afraid the animals were being stolen by disgruntled hill sprites. Father Dini concluded by expressing his doubt at this theory. With my interest piqued, I packed a case and secured a seat on a carriage that was scheduled to depart for Suffolk the next morning. Tiny crooked cottages nestled together, forming a line against the fierce winds that rolled unopposed across the featureless Suffolk plains. Scattered farmhouses were dotted either side of the line of cottages, with the church lying far to the east. Beyond that was nothing but tangled grasses, overturned tree trunks, and muddy bogs. Truly, Woolpit was a desolate place. Father Dini, though a shade nervous of my presence, verified that to his knowledge the story I had read was a genuine and accurate account of the one reported to him. Further, he confirmed that sheep were continuing to be lost and that the threat of starvation hung over the village due to the prediction of a harsh winter. When pressed to join me on my investigation, he politely declined and advised that I save my breath when it came to asking any of the villagers. Fear, he explained, was rife among them. I took to the land where the figures had reportedly been seen, examining it thoroughly in the hope of finding footprints I could track. The turn of the soil and the tangle of the grass made it all but impossible to distinguish animal prints from man's, and I soon abandoned the idea, choosing to focus my search within the area Father Dini had earlier marked out as where the pale figures had seemed to vanish. It was here that I found the first burrow. Oval in appearance and larger than that of a badger set, the hole lay covered by thick tufts of grass and would have been easily missed had I not twisted my ankle by stumbling into it. Ignoring the pain, I noted that while it was not large enough for an adult to enter, an adolescent or child might fit comfortably. If the pale shapes had been those of children, by all accounts, judging by the description of their stature, this could indeed have been the case, then they might have hidden in this hole, appearing to their pursuers to have vanished into the earth. As I sat and strapped my ankle, using my sock as a makeshift support, I caught the touch of a gust of wind escaping the hole. This, I deduced, meant that my initial assessment of the gap had been incorrect, for if there was air flowing from it, then that meant there was another entrance. I sat for a while and listened to the wind as it turned underground. After a time, I arrived at the conclusion that I sat at one of many entrances to a vast network of tunnels. I reasoned it might be that the individuals who were stealing the sheep had not been found because they retreated below the surface where they could easily conceal themselves in a subterranean warren that the villagers likely knew nothing about. Convinced that the pale figures witnessed stealing sheep were not apparitions, as many of the villagers believed, but a collective of individuals who hid beneath the ground as a means of escape, I decided to look for an entrance to the arrangement of caverns that I might be able to pass through to try to locate the culprits. Looking back now, it is easy to say that I ought to have been less hasty in my actions, for I had paid little thought to the possible dangers I might face exploring underground. Surely it would have made sense for me to first return to the village, inform the locals of my discovery, and explain my intentions before attempting to gather a party of men to join me. Alas, the excitement of my discovery all but blinded me to any possible danger, and having located a hole large enough for me to pass through, while pressed to the ground, I entered the subterranean labyrinth. As one might imagine, it was dark inside the tunnel, yet not so dark that I was unable to see where I was going. 
there grew a type of lichen which shone with a faint gray light. I took comfort from its presence as I crawled deeper underground. There was an odor here, familiar and unpleasant. The tunnel twisted, turned, rose, and fell in elevation. Within moments, despite my conscious effort to track my route mentally, all sense of direction was lost. The tunnel was lined with countless smaller passages which branched off at irregular intervals on all sides. The constant drip of water was the only accompanying sound above the struggle of my movement. My breath came shallow and fast. My clothes were soaked and my muscles burned. The fetid smell of death grew more pungent the deeper into the gloom I moved. I lost all sense of time. It may have taken me minutes to reach the intersection where I was able to climb to my feet and stoop, or it may have been hours. Suffice to say, the cramped conditions in the absence of light were beginning to dull my senses. It started as a mere irritation, an irregular clicking that seemed to sound on all sides, almost unnoticed at first. Yet as my ears grew accustomed to the acoustics of the tunnel, I was alerted to the fact that the source of the clicking came at once from several locations nearby and seemed to shift unseen in the darkness. I paused for a moment and focused my attention on the noises that baited me. I could feel the air push over my flesh, carrying with it droplets of moisture and the scents of the earth. As I paused, so too did the clicking sounds. For a moment, I wondered if the nature of my confinement had led to my mind playing tricks on me and I doubted I had heard any such sounds at all. Remembering that I carried matchsticks, I removed them from my pocket, drew one, and struck it alight using the coarse side of the box. A fierce orange flame threw limited light upon my surroundings, and it was then that I saw the pallid face mere inches from my own staring back at me from the gloom. The figure in front of me balked in fear of the flame and within moments had scuttled away seeking refuge in a dark corner of the passage. While only afforded a brief view of the creature, I still remember her features. Such was the shock of her presence. She was undoubtedly human, though I must admit that I had never before looked upon such a pitiful cretin as she. Her skin was beyond pale and her eyes, colorless as they were, held no sign of humanity. It was as though she held no color within her flesh whatsoever. Her hair, limp and lifeless, which I would describe as white, though it hardly held any hue at all, plastered her neck and shoulders. Her frame was slender, her bone structure clearly visible to my eye. She wore nothing in the way of clothing, her flesh a coat of mud and grime. She was, however, highly agile. Having seen the speed and grace of her movement as she retreated from the flame, I would have found it hard to believe that such a fragile creature might be capable of such movement, had I not witnessed so firsthand. In the short time that match burned, I saw the creature before me retreat into the shadows and caught the sound of movement to my left. A chorus of frantic clicks passed back and forth from the shadows, and I deduced that this was how the creatures communicated. As to what they were speaking of, I dared not imagine. The match sputtered out and darkness closed around me once more. Almost at once I heard hurried movement as the creatures that had fled the light of my match left their hiding places and inched towards me. With my bearings well and truly lost and panic beginning to set in, I fumbled for my matchbox, the contents of which spilled to the floor. Cursing my luck, I began to back out of the crossway towards the passage I had emerged from. It is not an easy task to maneuver oneself backwards while crouched 
surrounded by darkness and fearing for one's life. Again, I cannot say how long it took me to navigate back along the tunnel. Suffice to say, I moved more quickly backwards than I had done forwards earlier that day. The creatures making the clicking sounds did not pursue. At least I could not say that I saw them nearby. However, I caught the sound of their peculiar chatter several times during my retreat, each time originating from a tunnel or passageway that led off from the one I occupied. Perhaps then they did follow? Keen to keep an eye on the imposter from the world above, eager to make sure that I returned whence I came. I have no doubt that they could have struck me at any given moment should they have so wished. I was a stranger in their domain, lost in their home. Why they chose to let me leave that place unscathed, I cannot say for sure, though I need not mention that I was glad to do so. It was early evening when I emerged, sodden and weary among the thistles and the grass. I spent the short walk back to the village trying to organize my thoughts. Whatever rationalism I attempted it, I knew my story would sound far-fetched. I had encountered individuals living beneath the ground that surrounded the village. That much was true. The descriptions of the sallow creatures seen stealing sheep matched those I had encountered, and I had stumbled upon animal remains during my hasty retreat from their lair. It was evident to me that whoever dwelt underground was using the village's sheep as a source of food. What had happened to prompt them to leave the safety of their lair to forage, I could not say. Though of human origin, these descendants of people had foregone the world and its ways for a life below ground. How else could I explain their gaunt appearance, the means by which they communicated, or the extensive network of tunnels, many of which I believed had been dug by hand? Would it be possible for the villagers and those who live beneath their lands to coexist? Though I wished it might, though I wished it might, I had serious reservations as to whether that would be possible. I retired to my room after speaking with Father Dini, assuring him that I would recount my tale to him and his congregation the following morning. That night I slept little, so tormented was I by the ashen face of the creature from beneath the ground. I shall always hold myself accountable for what they did upon hearing my tale. Gripped by fear of the unknown and with no doubt in part stirred by my inability to provide answers, the villagers took to the fields. Try as I might to deter them from their actions, my pleas fell on deaf ears. Men, women, and children sought out places where the creatures I had described might surface, then in turn, each hole was sealed with a mound of rocks. Long into the night they worked, and I, helpless to intervene, could only watch in despair. Though I understood the subterranean creatures little, I felt in my heart that they would pose no threat, beyond stealing sheep, to the villagers. Sealing them into the ground amounted to burying them alive. I saw this as an act of murder. Suffice to say, the villagers did not. I left that place the very next morning. Glancing out across the fields, I saw that many of the villagers had returned to their labors of the previous day. Such was their commitment to safeguarding their homes from a threat unseen and misunderstood. I know not what became of the pallid ones, only that I never heard mention of them again. I often wonder whether their knowledge of the underground meant that they were able to escape the attentions of the village and survive unseen elsewhere. Alas, 
I shall likely never know for sure. Hope you enjoyed tonight's tales, The Tainted Isle, featuring The Art of Disbelief, The Restless Witch, Mother, The Pallid Ones, by Dan Weatherer. Award-winning author Dan Weatherer was first published by Haunted Magazine in spring 2013. Aside from the publication of numerous short stories with a multitude of presses, his next major project was a solo collection of short stories titled The Soul That Screamed, winner of the Predators and Editors Readers Poll Best Anthology 2013. An accomplished playwright, Dan was the winner of the 2017 Soundwork UK Play Competition, a finalist in the Blackshaw Showcase Award 2016, and a two-time finalist of the Congleton Players One Act Festival 2016. Dan has had several of his plays appear at festivals and fringe events. The Dead Stage, a book detailing Dan's experiences as a novice playwright was published courtesy of Crystal Lake Publishing in October 2018. In 2019, Dan was nominated for a local Heroes Award, The Sentinel for his continued promotion of literacy and mental health issues in the city of Stoke-on-Trent. In 2020, Dan became a contributor for Creepypasta Stories and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. 2020 also saw the release of his novella, Cheslin Meyer, Domain Publishing. Presently, Dan contributes to the YouTube channel Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and his stage plays continue to be sold and performed worldwide. Check out Dan's website at www.danweatherer.co.uk. That's D-A-N-W-E-A-T-H-E-R-E-R.co.uk. If you enjoyed tonight's story, hosted by yours truly, Paul J. McSorley, you can search my name on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for additional previous stories. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks. Available now on audible.com or just visit paulsbooks.net. That's P-A-U-L-S-B-O-O-K-S.net. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple Podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. 
thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.